If the sacrifices of the Old Covenant were ineffectual, then why does the author of Hebrews use them as a paradigm for the sacrifice of Christ? Here to tackle that question is Benjamin J. Ribbons in his recent work, Levitical Sacrifice and Heavenly Cult in Hebrews. That's published by DeGrider in 2016. You're listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, and I'm Michael Morales, your host. Dr. Benjamin J. Ribbons is Assistant Professor of Theology at Trinity Christian College in Palos Heights, Illinois. He earned his Master of Divinity and THM degrees from Calvin Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and received his Ph.D. at Wheaton College Graduate School in Wheaton, Illinois, in 2013. In addition to his monograph on Hebrews, he has articles published in Westminster Theological Journal, Catholic Biblical Quarterly, and Journal of Theological Interpretation. Thanks, Michael. Uh, Thanks for having me on. It's a real honor to be here on the podcast and to be able to share a little bit about my book. I've really enjoyed listening to past episodes of the podcast, learned a lot, so it's real joy to find someone who wants to talk about your research, so it's a real pleasure to be here. Benjamin, let's begin by hearing a little bit more about yourself. Give us a five-minute biography and how you came to study the book of Hebrews. So I grew up in Iowa, a little town called Pella. They make windows there, if you've ever heard of Pella windows. I then went to uh, undergraduate in a small school in the northwest part of the state called Dort, D-O-R-D-T. And from there, I went to Calvin Seminary to get my Master's of Divinity and then Uh, THM in New Testament, which was a nice stepping stone for me to Wheaton College, where I did my doctoral work with Damu. I was fortunate enough that coming out of my doctorate, I got a job at Trinity Christian College, where I've been uh, teaching as an assistant professor of theology for the last four years, teaching foundations courses and Bible and New Testament courses. And I'm excited to start my fifth year here in a couple of weeks. Um, yeah, what else? In terms of family, I'm married. My wife's name is Whitney, and we live in Chicago, really enjoying a, a great Chicago summer. And most of the rest of my family is back in Iowa. In terms of how I came to study Hebrews, uh, this book, the monograph, is a lightly revised version of my dissertation uh, that I did under the supervision of Doug New. And when I applied to work with Doug, we started talking about the project. And I was interested in Hebrews, particularly the area of sacrifice and atonement. And as I started reading in that area, I was noticing that not a whole lot of works on Hebrews spent time really discussing what Levitical sacrifice accomplished as compared to Christ's sacrifice. Uh, A few works would ignore this question altogether. Most of them would have a few sentences or a paragraph or two. The most I could really find was about uh, an article length dealing with this question. And oftentimes in those descriptions, there was a lot of assuming that people were on the same page. There were a lot of uh, synthetic and concluding comments without there being an investigation of the data. And ultimately, I found little consensus, little discussion, and a handful of proposals that I didn't find all that convincing. So I thought maybe this would be an area where I could add to the conversation. So that's how um, I came to to study this area and to to address this question. Thank you. So in your book, Levitical Sacrifice and Heavenly Cult in Hebrews, you're addressing particular tensions, at least in academia, regarding Hebrews. Will you set that up for us? Explain the issue of Hebrews' use of Levitical sacrifices. 
Yeah. So the fundamental, the underlying tension that will then lead to some tensions and and some academic responses is the fact that Hebrews is comparing Christ's sacrifice to the Levitical sacrifices. So as a result of that, Hebrews uh, wants to highlight a number of continuities in order to show that they are similar. In particular, he patterns Christ's sacrifice after the Day of Atonement. So Christ is a high priest uh, after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, just as a Levitical high priest passed through the tabernacle to enter the earthly holy of holies, so Christ passed through the heavenly tabernacle to enter the heavenly holy of holies. Jesus offers an, uh, blood, maybe even a sacrifice, just like the earthly high priest does, and both of them achieve purification. And as the Day of Atonement was once a year, so Jesus' sacrifice was once for all. Hebrews establishes all those points of continuity between them. But on the same, at the same time, the author wants to demonstrate that Christ's sacrifice is superior to the Levitical sacrifices. So he also highlights a number of discontinuities in order to show that superiority. So Christ's sacrifice is in the heavenly sanctuary as opposed to the earthly. Christ offers his own blood as opposed to the blood of animals. Christ's sacrifice is once for all rather than repeated. And all of this boils down to a superior efficacy. Old Covenant sacrifices could not perfect the worshipers or their consciences, could not ultimately cleanse them, couldn't take away sins or the consciousness of sins, whereas Christ's sacrifice could cleanse the conscience, could take away sins, and could make perfect those being sanctified. So the fundamental tension underlying it all is a tension of showing both continuity and discontinuity when it comes to Christ's sacrifice and the Old Covenant sacrifices. Uh, the question then becomes, where exactly do we say uh, Levitical sacrifice did and what didn't it do? And oftentimes I think there's been a lot of um, rushed conclusions about that without really investigating that tension. So st- scholars oftentimes, their conclusion will be, because of that critique, well, Levitical sacrifices didn't really accomplish anything at all. That's kind of the the quick conclusion that it, that scholars often come to. But the problem, if you come to that conclusion, and this is a problem that other scholars have, have pointed out, is that you end up with a self-contradictory sacrifice theology. So what are some of the ways other scholars have proposed to solve these tensions? A.J.M. Wedderburn has a great title to an article. Uh, the title is Sawing Off the Branches, Theologizing Dangerously at Hebraeus, where he basically argues that Hebrew spends all of this time developing this parallel between Jesus' salvific work and sacrifice, and then he cuts off the branch he is sitting on. He's using cultic imagery to explain the death of Christ, but then he dismisses and criticizes the cult. So what's the point of drawing that parallel if you think that Levitical sacrifice is inefficacious, an external ritual that doesn't accomplish anything? So that's one tension that we find if we come to that quick conclusion that Levitical sacrifice doesn't accomplish anything. The second thing that scholars have pointed out is you end up viewing Hebrews then as a malicious reinterpreter of the Old Testament. Uh, So scholars have pointed out that the Pentateuch describes Old Testament sacrifices, for instance, the sin offering, burnt offering, and guilt offering, as achieving atonement and forgiving sins. So if you read Hebrews in a way that says Levitical sacrifices don't do those, then the author either is ignoring certain parts of the Pentateuch, doesn't fully understand them, or is purposefully manipulating them to present a negative view of Judaism. 
All right, before we get to your proposed solution to that tension, I want to consider your approach in this study first. You survey Second Temple understandings of both Levitical sacrifices and of the heavenly sanctuary and cult. Tell us why Second Temple literature was important for your study. Maybe give us a brief summary of those views. Sure. Yeah, happy to do that. So first, I should probably explain why I go that direction rather than uh, beginning with uh, Leviticus and the Pentateuch in general. So as I started this project, I did a lot of reading research into um, Old Testament uh, scholars and how they read Leviticus and the Pentateuch. and ultimately, I came to both a pragmatic and a methodological conclusion that it was probably better to, to go right to the Second Temple texts. So the pragmatic part of that is that there's a lot of debate amongst Old Testament scholars about the, the proper interpretation of political sacrifice. And if I was to try to venture there and, and kind of step on, on your grounds, um, I wouldn't be able to really accomplish a whole lot in terms of what I wanted to say about Hebrews. Uh, any attempt to address those issues would take focus away from, from Hebrews and would ultimately just be kind of a cursory examination of the scholarly discussion that's been ongoing. And then on the methodological side, what I was really interested in was how first century Jewish texts were reading Leviticus and the Pentateuch. So the author of Hebrews and his audience, what would they have assumed uh, Levitical sacrifice accomplished? While it's important to figure out what Leviticus means, I was less concerned about whether Milgram is correct about Leviticus and more concerned about how uh, a first-century reader of Leviticus would understand Levitical sacrifice. Now, that in itself is is a pretty big project. Uh, There's lots of data. At one point, uh, that one chapter was three chapters, and so I had to try to synthesize as much of that as possible. And a few of the things, a few of the conclusions I came to after reading through and processing um, all of that, I think were pretty significant for the rest of the project. So the first thing that I found pretty clear and pretty significant from the Second Temple text was that the sacrificial cult was a significant institution in the first century. Uh, No Jewish text prior to 70 CE speak negatively about the sacrificial cult. And while plenty of them critique the contemporary administration of sacrifice in Jerusalem, the depth of concern over temple issues speaks to the pride of place that the temple and the cult served in the first century. Even the Qumran community, which had separated itself from the Jerusalem temple, esteemed the sacrificial cult in its essence as prescribed by scripture. So despite some scholars suggesting that there's a diminishing interest and concern for Levitical sacrifice by the time we get to the first century, I didn't find that in the text. That's interesting. The second thing that I found significant was that the Second Temple text continued to ascribe to sacrifices the efficacies that we see given to them in Leviticus. And there I found primarily atonement and then also forgiveness and purification as the three primary things that Second Temple texts repeatedly ascribe to Levitical sacrifice. Third, 
I noticed that while Leviticus often talks about the atonement of places and even cultic furniture, Second Temple texts rarely talk about atoning uh, the temple or the furniture in the temple. Atonement is almost always about the benefit to the human being as it relates to their sin. Fourth, and related to that, where it's not about the human being, sometimes God is actually the object of that atonement, which suggests that propitiation might be in you. Two more. Uh, fifth, internal dispositions matter. And this is where we see that prophetic critique from uh, coming into play in the Second Temple texts, where your intentions and the disposition of the offerer matters. And if you don't have the right dispositions, then God won't accept the sacrifice and it won't be efficacious. And the last thing I noticed is there's emphasis on the need, that emphasis on the need for piety and good intentions. It also leads to a transference of sacrificial terminology to act of non-cultic piety. So for instance, and we see this in the Psalms and prophets as well, things like prayer, charity, tithing, these are described with sacrificial words, that these are like a sacrifice rising up to God. So those were kind of the big six things that I found uh, coming away from the Second Temple text in terms of how they will talk about sacrifice, what it accomplishes, and how it relates to the worshiper. You mentioned less emphasis on the cleansing of the temple in Second Temple literature and more emphasis on cleansing the people through the sacrifices and the Day of Atonement. Could that be related to the Qumran community's view that the people themselves formed, as it were, a spiritual temple? Yes. So, so what I found in particular with the Qumran community is they're still holding out hope of, of getting back control of the temple. So you still have texts that talk about what will it look like if we control the temple and we perform these sacrifices properly. And when they talk about that, the same efficacies are in place, such as atonement. But in light of the fact that they have left the Jerusalem temple because they have rejected the current administration of it, they're trying to figure out how to live without that uh, way of accessing atonement and forgiveness. And so in the absence of that, we do see kind of that last category where non-cultic, uh, what, what I'll call non-cultic piety, like prayer, like charity, these things, they'll take on some sacrificial imagery so that the people as a worshiping body become a temple in which these non-cultic acts of piety can take place. What we also see in the Qumran community is a lot of talk about the earthly worship merging with the heavenly worship, uh, which starts to point towards kind of the next part of the book where um, you can still access these goods from God, such as atonement and forgiveness, if you can merge your worship with the heavenly worship. Turning to the book of Hebrews itself now, what, according to the author of Hebrews, did the Levitical sacrifices accomplish and not accomplish? As I've been suggesting so far, one of the baseline assumptions that the author would have and would share with his audience is that notion that sacrifice atones and forgives. And if that's kind of a baseline assumption that first century readers would have, what you would expect to find in the book of Hebrews is that the author is going to have an assumed knowledge of the positive benefits, but then as he talks about 
price sacrifice, he'll also critique and show how price sacrifice is superior. And that's that's really what we find. And the problem is that because the author can assume some of those positive implications, we sometimes miss them. But one thing I'm arguing is that they're still there. We still see those assumptions about positive efficacy showing themselves in the Hebrews. So, for instance, there are a handful of texts where the author mentions that the Levitical sacrifices are for sins. For instance, Hebrews 5 verse 1 says that every high priest offers gifts and sacrifices for sins. Two verses later, Hebrews 5, 3, that high priest must offer sacrifice for his own sins as well as for those of the people. In Hebrews 7, 27, Christ, unlike the Levitical high priest, has no need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. And I'll just list one more, Hebrews 9, 7, the author described the day of atonement when the high priest enters the holy holies with the blood to offer for himself and for the sins committed unintentionally by the people. So the question becomes, what does it mean that these sacrifices are for sins? And what I would suggest is that in those passages, you are seeing that assumed knowledge between the author and the audience. Because whenever you read uh, the Pentateuch and when you read the Second Temple literature, when you talk about sacrifices being for sins, what does that mean? It means atonement and it means forgiveness. There are then texts in Hebrews that do affirm the forgiveness language. For instance, Hebrews 9.22 makes the axiomatic statement that under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So a baseline understanding of both Old Covenant and New Covenant is that the shedding of blood, which is sacrifice, either in the uh, slaughter or in the sprinkling of blood, that that sacrificial outpouring of blood leads to forgiveness. So Old Covenant sacrifices, therefore, attain forgiveness, and this becomes the model that then Jesus follows, so that his outpouring of blood leads to forgiveness. And the other text that mentions forgiveness is Hebrews 10, 18. Uh, and that's more of a summarizing critique and mention of Christ's superiority where the author says, where there is forgiveness of these. Then there is no more offering for sin. That's right. So most of us read that passage and we see that the negative critique or the end of sacrifice, but it really depends on an assumption that Levitical sacrifice achieves forgiveness. Because what the author is saying is that since Christ achieves an ongoing, a perpetual, eternal forgiveness, you no longer need the thing that you used to do to get forgiveness, which is the Levitical sacrifice. So those are the passages that I think either implicitly or explicitly draw the connections to the efficacy. But I think there's other aspects of the author's argument that really show this underlying assumption of these positive implications and positive efficacies. For instance, the author is very clear that God ordained the, the Levitical system and the Levitical cult which again suggests that when God, along with that, promises that when you make these sacrifices, there will be atonement and their sins will be forgiven, that God intends that. We see the affirmation of the Pentateuch uh, throughout the book of Hebrews, where the author will quote the Old Testament and say, these are the very words of God. It would seem strange for that same author to essentially run roughshod over and to uh, reject other parts of the Old Testament. 
And then as we talked about earlier, um, that pattern, that model, um, suggests that Levitical sacrifice did accomplish something. Because otherwise, why would you pattern Christ sacrifice after something that doesn't accomplish anything? Well, now, Ben, you've made the argument so strongly that the Levitical sacrifices were effective. They accomplished the forgiveness of sins, atonement, cleansing. The question now becomes, why do we need the sacrifice of Christ at all? Sure. Um, well, there's there's two layers to that, I would suggest. Uh, one of them is that there are other efficacies that Levitical sacrifice don't accomplish that only Christ's sacrifice does. And in Hebrews, those seem to be um, access to God, uh, perfection, and redemption. And I could talk a little bit more about what I think each one of those is, but those are at least three primary salvific goods that we don't see realized until the New Covenant period. Along with that, kind of the broader thesis of the book is that the Levitical sacrifices, they do achieve atonement and forgiveness, but only in so much as they uh, receive that efficacy from Christ. So the larger thesis of the book, I, I talk about Levitical sacrifices as sacramental Christological types. And oftentimes scholars will talk about typology or they'll talk about Levitical sacrifices as types. And oftentimes what that means is that there is this correspondence that both in the details and the efficacy, there is similarity between them. But I'm suggesting another kind of typology where the Levitical sacrifice is a ritual that in and of itself doesn't have any efficacy, but God promises that will achieve something. So even though the ritual in and of itself doesn't accomplish anything, God gives a promise that when they do it, there will be atonement and forgiveness. And it's that kind of promise attached to an external ritual that led me to, to use the word sacramental. And so what we need is Christ's sacrifice, which is the truly efficacious sacrifice that achieves atonement and forgiveness once for all. And the efficacy of Christ's sacrifice then is applied proleptically or retroactively back to the Levitical sacrifices. God's promise that the Levitical sacrifice will atone and forgive is then fulfilled, achieved in Christ's sacrifice. That makes good sense. Did you find, Ben, that there are other figures in the history of interpretation that came to the same conclusion that you've come to now? Yeah, there's, uh, in, in a basic sense, this is not a new proposal. This is not a new conclusion. Uh, as I've done some research into history of interpretation, I found this line of thought particularly present in the Reformed tradition. So John Calvin adopts this view, and we see then a handful, and really more than a handful of other scholars kind of pick this up uh, and move forward with it, especially in uh, the post-Reformation time. Uh, so Calvin and a number of Reformed uh, exegetes have, have adopted this proposal. What I think this book does is it, it argues for it in a new and unique way, kind of based more on um, some Second Temple passages, uh, the heavenly sanctuary, the heavenly cult, to try to show that um, this 
kind of reformed line, this reformed trajectory, isn't something that comes out of modern interpretation, but really comes out of and can be rooted in some ancient ways of thinking about the heavenly temple. You mentioned earlier, Ben, three aspects of the sacrifice of Christ that were above and beyond the Levitical sacrifices and efficacy. Could you explain those for us? Sure. Uh, So we see, I think somewhat clearly in the book of Hebrews, that Christ achieves or brings believers into access to God. Whereas previously, and we see this in Hebrews 9, 1 through 10, whereas previously the Levitical sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, we see the high priest approach the presence of God, but that's only once a year and it's even a limited access. The Levitical sacrifice shows that you don't really have true access. But with Christ's sacrifice, we have a, a pioneer who makes his way into the heavenly holy of holies and then we're called especially in uh, the latter half of Hebrews 10 to enter that heavenly throne room and to uh, come into the presence and to have access to God. So that's uh, to me one clear new reality that old covenant sacrifice could not accomplish but Christ's sacrifice does accomplish. I think related to that is this uh, language in Hebrews of perfection. There's lots of talk um, and lots of discussion and argument about what perfection language in Hebrews is about. Um, I spend some time in the book arguing that perfection language is also about that access. And it's clear in Hebrews that this perfection is not possible under the Levitical sacrifice, but uh, we with Christ's sacrifice, perfection happens. And there's also this interesting text in um, Hebrews 11:39 to 40, where he talks about those those saints, those faithful ones who have uh, heard the promise, accepted the promise, but haven't experienced the inheritance. That when Christ comes, all of a sudden they experience the perfection. They're now brought into the presence of God. So there's a new reality even for those uh, old covenant saints. And then uh, redemption. I think redemption is a big, maybe very useful distinction as we think about what Levitical sacrifice does as compared compared to Christ's sacrifice. Um, Forgiveness is wiping away or removing the punishment that is due someone. Whereas redemption is paying the ransom or the cost in a way that it actually takes that um, sin away. So the one simply says, I will not punish you. The other one actually fundamentally deals with the problem of sin and removes it. So what I would suggest is that in uh, with Levitical sacrifice, God promises, I will punish you for that. But that doesn't mean that the sin is actually dealt with and taken care of in terms of um, what I might call cosmic justice. And we hear language like this elsewhere in the New Testament, like uh, Romans 3, 21 to 26, where we get a passing over of previously committed sins. So although there's forgiveness, the sins seem to be amassing and accumulating until Christ can actually come and pay the, the price or redeem the believers from those sins. Now, once you have redemption, there's no punishment. So redemption 
will include forgiveness, because once you remove the sin, there's no longer a punishment for it, but you can have forgiveness without redemption. So I would suggest Christ's sacrifice in the middle of human history is that moment where all sins are redeemed. So the Old Testament sacrifices were like credit cards. They purchased real benefits like cleansing and forgiveness of sin, but based on God's promise to pay. Mm. The bill was still outstanding, and Christ's sacrifice is the true and full payment. Would that be something that you agree with? Yeah, I like that analogy. That's that's nice. And it may actually play nicely with Hebrews' language of uh, the conscience and kind of having this nagging conscience. So, uh, right, what, what I think we see in Hebrews is that the Levitical sacrifice does atone, it does forgive, but there's also this awareness that it can ultimately redeem, in particular because if we're thinking about sacrifice as um, a payment, and if the cost is uh, your life, how could an animal life substitute in? What you need is a human life to substitute in. So there's this nagging awareness of your sinful state that although, although there's atonement and forgiveness, uh, something is still not right. And so this is the thing that's, that Hebrews seems to be talking about as troubling the conscience, a, a conscience that cannot be fully purified and redeemed, or I would rather say perfected. So until that conscience is purified, you can't be perfected and brought into the presence of God. And that really doesn't happen until the, the bill is paid, as we using the analogy that you're talking about. So it's kind of hanging over your head. And once it's paid, then you're kind of in the clear fully. Everybody wants to know the answer to that question. Everybody asks that question. Um, and you know what? People don't believe me when I say this, but I just, I don't have any idea and I don't even have any suspicions or inklings. Um, I'm as lost as other scholars and I really don't even have a proposal to put forward for you. Fair enough. Ben, this has been a fascinating look at sacrifices in the book of Hebrews. Before we let you go, can you tell us about any other projects you're working on? Sure. Yeah, right now I'm continuing to do some work in the book of Hebrews uh, around themes of sacrifice and atonement. I've been working on a couple of pieces recently that investigate uh, the role of ascension in atonement. So if in Hebrews we see Christ following that pattern of the Day of Atonement, where the the animal is slaughtered, the priest takes the blood and enters the Holy of Holies and presents it before God. The author seems to talk about Jesus' sacrifice in a similar way, where Jesus is the sacrificial victim. He then, he dies as victim, rises from the dead, ascends to heaven, the heavenly throne room, as priest to present his offering. And so I'm investigating the role of the ascension in Christ's atonement and what that might look like. Um, Beyond that, I'm continuing to kind of explore some threads related to the dissertation, the book, uh, themes of sacrifice that occur elsewhere in the New Testament. And then kind of my own interest and my own teaching has led me to have some some interesting ideas in the Catholic and Pauline epistles. And the apocalyptic angle in the book uh, has some really interesting intersections with the book of Revelation. So those are maybe some bigger, broader areas that I'm moving toward. Uh, but the things that are kind of ruminating in, in the back of my mind. That all sounds great. Well, Ben, thank you for being with us on the show today. Thank you. It was uh, a pleasure. And thanks for helping get the word out about the book. 
Friends, you've been listening to Benjamin Ribbons talk about his recent publication, Levitical Sacrifice and Heavenly Cult in Hebrews. You'll find a link to it on our website. Check it out. Once again, thank you for tuning in. Until next time, goodbye.